0: chapter 14 of collected papers on analytical psychology this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by olivia collected papers on analytical psychology by carl gustav jung translated by constance ellen long 1867 to 1923 chapter 14 the psychology of the unconscious processes being a survey of the modern theory and method of analytical psychology section one the beginnings of psychoanalysis in common with other sciences psychology has had to go through its scholastic philosophic stage and to some extent this has lasted on to the present time this philosophic psychology has incurred our condemnation in that it decides ex cathedra what is the nature of the soul and whence and how it derives its attributes the spirit of modern scientific investigation has summarily disposed of all these fantasies and in their place has established an exact empiric method we owe to this our present-day experimental psychology or psychophysiology as the french call it this new direction originated with fechner that janus minded spirit who in his remarkable psychophysique published in eighteen sixty embarked on the mighty enterprise of introducing the physical standpoint into the conception of psychical phenomena the whole idea of this work and not least its astonishing mistakes proved most fruitful in results for wundt fechner's young contemporary and it is wundt's great erudition enormous power of work and genius for elaborating methods of experimental research which have given to modern psychology its prevailing direction until quite recently experimental psychology remained essentially academic the first noticeable attempt to utilize some few at any rate of its innumerable experimental methods in the service of practical psychology came from the psychiatrists of the former Heidelberg School, Kraepelin, Aschaffenburg, etc. It is quite intelligible that the psychotherapists should be the first to feel the urgent need for a more exact knowledge of psychic processes. Next came pedagogy, making its own demands upon psychology. Out of this has recently grown up an experimental pedagogy. And in this field, Neumann in Germany and Binet in France have rendered signal services. The physician, the so-called nerve specialist, has the most urgent need of psychological knowledge. If he would really help his patients for neurotic disturbances, such as hysteria and all things classified as nervousness, are of psychic origin and necessarily demand psychic treatment. Cold water, light, air, electricity, magnetism, and so forth are only effective temporarily and quite often are of no use at all. They are frequently introduced into treatment in a not very commendable fashion, simply because reliance is placed upon their suggestive effect. But it is in his soul that the patient is really sick in those most complicated and lofty functions which we scarcely dare to include in the province of medicine. The doctor must needs in such a case, be a psychologist, must needs understand the human soul. He cannot evade the urgent demand upon him. So he naturally turns for help to psychology, since his psychiatry textbooks have nothing to offer him. But modern experimental psychology is very far from being able to afford him any connected insight into the most vital psychic processes. That is not its aim. As far as possible, it tries to isolate those simple elementary phenomena which border on the physiological and then study them in an isolated state it quite ignores the infinite variation and movement of the mental life of the individual and accordingly its knowledge and its facts are so many isolated details uninspired by any comprehensive idea capable of bringing them into coordination hence it comes about that the inquirer after the secrets of the human soul learns rather less than nothing from experimental psychology he would be better advised to abandon exact science take off his scholar's gown say farewell to his study and then strong in manly courage set out to wander through the world alike through the horrors of prisons lunatic asylums and hospitals through dreary outlying taverns through brothels and gambling halls into elegant drawing-rooms the stock exchanges socialist meetings churches revival gatherings of strange religious sects experiencing in his own person love and hate and every kind of suffering. He would return laden with richer knowledge than his yard long textbooks could ever have given him, and thus equipped, he can indeed be a physician to his patients, for he understands the soul of man. He may be pardoned if his respect for the cornerstones of experimental psychology is no longer very considerable. There is a great gulf fixed between what science calls psychology on the one hand. And what the practice of everyday life expects from psychology on the other this need became the starting point of the new psychology whose inception we owe first and foremost to the genius of sigmund freud of vienna to his researches into functional nervous disease the new type of psychology might be described as analytical psychology professor bluhler has coined the name deep psychology to indicate that the freudian psychology takes as its province the deeper regions the hinterland of the soul, the unconscious. Freud names his method of investigation psychoanalysis. Before we approach the matter more closely, we must first consider the relationship of the new psychology to the earlier science. Here we encounter a singular little farce, which once again proves the truth of Anatole France's apothem: Les savants ne sont pas curieux. The first important piece of work in this new field awakened only the faintest echo in spite of the fact that it offered a new and fundamental conception of the neuroses. Certain writers expressed their approbation, and then, on the next page, proceeded to explain their cases of hysteria in the good old way. It was as much as if a man should subscribe fully to the idea of the earth's being spherical, and yet continue to represent it as flat. Freud's next publications were practically unnoticed, although they contributed findings of immeasurable importance to the domain of psychiatry when in nineteen hundred he produced the first real psychological elucidation of the dream previously there had reigned over this territory a suitable nocturnal darkness he was ridiculed and when in the middle of the last decade he began to illumine the psychology of sexuality itself and at the same time the zurich school decided to range itself on his side a storm of abuse sometimes of the coarsest kind burst upon him nor yet has it ceased to rage at the last southwest german congress of alienists in baden-baden the adherents of the new psychology had the pleasure of hearing hocke university professor of psychiatry at freiburg and Breisgau, describe the movement in a long and much applauded address as an outbreak of mental aberration among doctors the old proverb medicus medicum non decimat was here quite put to shame how carefully the question had been studied was shown by the naive remark of one of the most distinguished neurologists of paris which i myself heard at the international congress in 1907. it is true i have not read freud's works he did not happen to know any german but as for his theories they are nothing but mauvais plaisanteries freud dignified masterly once said to me I first became clearly conscious of the value of my discoveries when they were met everywhere with resistance and anger since that time i have judged the value of my work according to the degree of opposition provoked it is against my sexual theory that the greatest indignation is felt so it would seem therein lies my best work perhaps after all the real benefactors of mankind are its false teachers for opposition to the false doctrine pushes men willy-nilly into truth your truth-teller is a pernicious fellow. He drives men into error. The reader must now calmly accept the idea that in this psychology he is dealing with something quite unique, if not indeed with some altogether irrational, sectarian, or occult wisdom, for what else could possibly provoke all the scientific authorities to turn away on the very threshold, and utterly refuse to cross it? Accordingly, we must look more closely into this psychology, as long ago as charcot's time it was recognized that neurotic symptoms are psychogenic that is that they have their origin in the psyche it was also known thanks mainly to the work of the nancy school that every hysterical symptom can be exactly reproduced by means of suggestion but how a hysterical system arises and its relationship to psychic causes were altogether unknown in the beginning of the eighties dr brewer an old viennese doctor made a discovery which was really the true starting-point of the new psychology he had a very intelligent young patient a woman suffering from hysteria who exhibited the following symptoms among others a spastic paralysis of the right arm occasional disturbances of consciousness or twilight states and loss of the power of speech insofar as she no longer retained any knowledge of her mother tongue and could only express herself in english so-called systemic aphasia they sought at that time, and still seek, in such a case, to establish some theory of anatomical disturbance, although there was just as little disturbance in the arm centre in the brain as in that of any normal man who boxes another's ears. The symptomology of hysteria is full of anatomical impossibilities, such as the case of the lady who had lost her hearing completely through some hysterical malady. Nonetheless, she often used to sing, and once, when she was singing, her doctor sat down at the piano unnoticed by her and softly accompanied her passing from one strophe to another he suddenly altered the key and she quite unconscious of what she was doing sang on in the altered key thus she heard yet did not hear the various forms of systemic blindness present similar phenomena we have the case of a man suffering from complete hysterical blindness in the course of the treatment he recovers his sight but at first and for some long time only partially he could see everything with one exception people's heads he saw all the people around him without heads thus he saw yet did not see from a large number of like experiences it has long been concluded that it is only the patient's consciousness which does not see does not hear but the sense-function has nothing at all the matter with it this state of affairs is directly contradictory to the essence of an organic disturbance which always materially involves the function after this digression let us return to brewer's case since there was no organic cause for the disturbance the case was clearly to be regarded as hysterical that is psychogenic dr brewer had noticed that if during her twilight states whether spontaneous or artificially induced he let the patient freely express the reminiscences and fantasies that thronged in upon her her condition was afterwards much improved for some hours he made systemic use of this observation in her further treatment the patient herself invented the appropriate name for it of talking cure or in jest chimney sweeping her illness began whilst she was nursing her dying father it is easy to understand that her fantasies busied themselves mainly with this disturbing time in the twilight states, memories of this period reappeared with photographic fidelity, distinct in every detail. No waking recollection is ever so plastically and exactly reproduced. The term hypernesia is applied to this heightening of the power of memory, which occurs without difficulty in certain states of contracted consciousness. Remarkable things now came to light. Out of the many things told, one ran somewhat as follows. On a certain night she was in a state of great anxiety about her father's high temperature. She sat by his bed, waiting for the surgeon who was coming from Vienna to perform an operation. Her mother had gone out of the room for a little while, and Anna, the patient, sat by the bed, with her right arm hanging over the back of her chair. She fell into a kind of waking dream, in which she saw a black snake come out from the wall, and approach the sick man, prepared to bite. It is very probable that some real snakes had been seen in the fields behind the house and that she had been frightened by them this would furnish the material for her hallucination she wanted to drive the creature away but felt paralyzed her right arm hanging over the chair had gone to sleep was anaesthetic and paretic and as she looked her fingers turned into little snakes with deaf heads the nails probably she tried to drive the snake away with her paralyzed right hand and thereby the anesthesia and paralysis became associated with the snake hallucination even after the snake had disappeared her terror remained great she tried to pray but found she had no words in any language until at length she managed to remember some english nursery rhymes and then she could go on thinking and praying in that language this was the actual scene in which the paralysis and speech disturbance arose the describing it served to remove the speech trouble, and in this same fashion the case was finally completely cured. I must restrict myself to this one instance. In Brewer and Freud's book there is a wealth of similar examples. It is easy to understand that scenes such as these make a very strong impression, and accordingly there is an inclination to attribute a causal significance to them in the genesis of the symptoms. The then-current conception of hysteria, arising from the English nervous shock theory, which Charcot strongly supported, came in conveniently to elucidate Brewer's discovery. Hence arose the trauma theory, maintaining that the hysterical symptom and, insofar as the symptoms comprise the disease, hysteria itself arises from some psychic injury or trauma, the effect of which is retained in the unconscious indefinitely. Freud, working as Brewer's colleague, amply confirmed this discovery it was fully demonstrated that not one out of the many hundred hysterical symptoms came down ready-made from heaven they had already been conditioned by past psychic experiences to some extent therefore this new conception opened up a field of very important empirical work but freud's tireless spirit of inquiry could not long rest content at this superficial layer since already there obtruded deeper and more difficult problems it's obvious enough that moments of great fear and anxiety, such as Brewer's patient went through, would leave behind a lasting effect. But how is it that these happenings are themselves already deeply stamped with the mark of morbidity? Must we suppose that the trying sick nursing in itself produced such a result? If so, such effects should occur much more frequently, for there are, unfortunately, many trying cases of sick nursing, and the nurse's nervous constitution is by no means always of the soundest. To this problem, medicine gives its admirable answer. The X in the calculation is predisposition. There is a tendency to these things. But for Freud, the problem was what exactly constitutes this predisposition? This question led logically to an investigation of all that had preceded the psychic trauma. It is a matter of common observation that distressing scenes have markedly different effects upon the different participants, and that things which to some are quite indifferent or even pleasant such as frogs mice snakes cats excite the greatest aversion in others there are cases of women who can calmly be present at a very bad operation but who tremble all over with horror and nausea at the touch of a cat by way of illustration let me give the case of a young lady suffering from severe hysteria following a sudden fright she had been at a social gathering and was on her way home at midnight accompanied by several acquaintances when a carriage came up behind them at full speed all the others moved out of the way but she beside herself with fright ran down the middle of the road just in front of the horses the coachman cracked his whip and cursed and swore in vain she ran down the whole length of the street till a bridge was reached there her strength failed her and to escape the horses feet in her despair she would have jumped into the water had not passers-by prevented her this same lady happened to be in petrograd during that sanguinary revolution of the twenty-second of january and saw a street cleared by the volleys of soldiers all around her people were dropping down dead or wounded but she retained her calmness and self-possession and caught sight of a door which gave her escape into another street these terrible moments agitated her neither at the time nor later on she was quite well afterwards indeed felt better than usual essentially similar reactions can quite often be observed hence it follows that the intensity of the trauma is of small pathogenic importance the peculiar circumstances determine its pathogenic effect here then we have the key which enables us to unlock at least one of the anterooms to an understanding of predisposition we must now ask what were the unusual circumstances in this carriage scene the terror and apprehension began as soon as the lady heard the trampling horses for a moment she thought this portended some terrible fate her death or something equally frightful the next she lost all sense of what she was doing this powerful impression was evidently connected in some way with the horses the predisposition of the patient to react in such an exaggerated fashion to a not very remarkable incident might result from the fact that horses had some special significance for her it might be suspected that she had experienced some dangerous accident with them this actually turned out to be the case when a child of about seven years old she was out for a drive with a coachman the horses shied and galloped at full speed towards a steep river-bank the coachman jumped down and shouted to her to do the same but in her extreme terror she could scarcely bring herself to obey she did however just manage to jump out in the nick of time whilst the horses and carriage were dashed to pieces below no proof is needed that such an experience must leave a lasting impression behind it but it does not offer any explanation for such an exaggerated reaction to an inadequate stimulus so far we only know that this latter symptom had its prologue in childhood but its pathological aspect remains obscure to penetrate into the heart of such a mystery it was necessary to accumulate further material and the greater our experience, the clearer does it become that, in all cases with such traumatic experience, analyzed up to the present, there coexists a special kind of disturbance which can only be described as a derangement in the sphere of love. Not all of us give due credit to the anomalous nature of love, reaching high as heaven, sinking low as hell, uniting itself in all extremes of good and evil, of lofty and low. As soon as freud recognized this a decisive change came about in his view in his earlier researches whilst more or less dominated by charcot's trauma theory he had sought for the origin of the neurosis in actual traumatic experiences but now the centre of gravity shifted to a very different point this is best demonstrated by reference to our case we can understand that horses might easily play a significant part in the patient's life but it is not clear why there should be this later reaction so exaggerated so uncalled for it is not her fear of horses which forms the morbid factor in this curious story to get at the real truth we must remember our empirical conclusion that side by side with traumatic experiences there is also invariably present some disturbance in the sphere of love we must now go on to inquire whether perhaps there is anything unsatisfactory in this respect in the case under review our patient has a young man friend to whom she is thinking of becoming engaged. She loves him and expects to be happy with him. At first nothing more is discoverable. But the investigator must not let himself be deterred by a negative result in the beginning of this preliminary questioning. When the direct way does not lead to the desired end, an indirect way may be taken. We accordingly turn our attention back to that strange moment when she ran away in front of the horses. We inquire who were her companions and what kind of social gathering was it and find it was a farewell party to her best friend on her departure to a foreign health resort on account of a nervous breakdown we are told this friend is happily married and is the mother of one child we may well doubt the assertion that she is happy if she really were so it's hardly to be supposed that she would be nervous and in need of a cure when i attack the situation from a different vantage ground I learnt that our patient, after this episode, had been taken by her friends to the nearest safe place, her host's house. In her exhausted state, he took charge of her. When the patient came to this part of her story, she suddenly broke off, was embarrassed, fidgeted, and tried to turn the subject. Evidently, some disagreeable reminiscences had suddenly cropped up. After obstinate resistances had been overcome, she admitted something very strange had happened that night— her host had made her a passionate declaration of love thus occasioning a situation that in the absence of his wife might well be considered both painful and difficult ostensibly this declaration came upon her like a bolt from the blue but a small dose of criticism applied to such an assertion soon apprises us that these things never do drop suddenly from the sky they always have their previous history it was a task of the following weeks to dig out piecemeal a long love story i will attempt to sketch in the picture as it finally appeared as a child the patient was a thorough tomboy loved boys boisterous games laughed at her own sex and would have nothing to do with feminine ways or occupations after puberty just when the sex issue should have meant much to her she began to shun all society she seemingly hated and despised everything which could remind her even remotely of the biological destiny of mankind and lived in a world of fantasy which had nothing in common with rude reality thus till her twenty-fourth year she escaped all the little adventures hopes and expectations which ordinarily move a girl at this age but finally she got to know the two men who were destined to destroy the thorny hedge which had grown up around her mr a was her best friend's husband mr b was their bachelor friend she liked both but pretty soon found b the more sympathetic and an intimacy grew up between them which made an engagement seem likely through her friendship with him and with mrs a she often met mr a his presence excited her inexplicably made her nervous just at this time she went to a big party all her friends were there she became lost in thought and in a reverie was playing with her ring when suddenly it slipped out of her hand and rolled under the table both men tried to find it and mr b managed to get it with a meaning smile he put the ring back on her finger and said you know what this means overcome by some strange irresistible feeling she tore the ring from her finger and flung it out of the open window naturally a painful moment for all ensued and she soon went away much depressed a little while after so-called chance brought her for her summer holidays to the health resort where a and his wife were staying it was then that mrs a began to suffer from nerve trouble and frequently felt too unwell to leave the house so our patient could often go out for walks alone with a one day they were out in a small boat she was boisterously merry and fell overboard mr a saved her with difficulty as she could not swim and he managed to lift her into the boat in a half unconscious state then he kissed her this romantic event wove fast bonds between them in self-defence she did her best to get herself engaged to b and to persuade herself that she loved him of course this queer comedy could not escape the sharp eye of feminine jealousy mrs a her friend guessed the secret and was so much upset by it that her nervous condition grew bad enough to necessitate her trying a cure at a foreign health resort at the farewell gathering the demon came to our patient and whispered to-night he will be alone something must happen to you so that you can go to his house and so indeed it came about her strange behaviour made her friends take her to his house and thus she achieved her desire after this explanation the reader will probably be inclined to assume that only diabolical subtlety could think out and set in motion such a chain of circumstances there is no doubt about the subtlety but the moral evaluation is less certain i desire to lay special emphasis on the fact that the patient was in no sense conscious of the motives of this dramatic performance the incident apparently just came about of itself without any conscious motive whatsoever but the whole previous history makes it perfectly clear that everything was most ingeniously directed toward the other aim whilst the conscious self was apparently working to bring about the engagement to mr b the unconscious compulsion to take the other road was still stronger so once more we must return to our original question whence comes the pathological the peculiar and exaggerated reaction to the trauma Relying on the conclusion obtained from other analogous experiences, we ventured to conjecture that in the present case we had to do with a disturbance in the love life, in addition to the trauma. This supposition was thoroughly borne out. The trauma, which was apparently the cause of the illness, was merely the occasion for some factor, till then unconscious, to manifest itself. This was the significant erotic conflict." With this finding, the trauma loses its pathological significance and is replaced by a much deeper and more comprehensive conception, which regards the erotic conflict as the pathogenic agent. This conception may be described as the sexual theory of the neurosis. I am often asked why it is just the erotic conflict rather than any other which is the cause of the neurosis. There is but one answer to this. No one asserts that this ought necessarily to be the case but as a simple matter of fact it is always found to be so notwithstanding all the cousins and aunts godparents and teachers who rage against it despite all the indignant assertions to the contrary the problem and conflicts of love are of fundamental importance for humanity and with increasing careful study it comes out ever more clearly that the love life is of immensely greater importance than the individual suspects as a consequence of the recognition that the true root of the neurosis is not the trauma but the hidden erotic conflict, the trauma loses its pathological significance. End of chapter fourteen. Part one. Recording by Olivia.